This episode is brought to you by Loading Bar. Based in three locations, Stoke Newington and Peckham in London and Brighton on the South Coast, Loading offers video game aficionados somewhere to drink, relax and play. Visitors can expect a welcoming space full of free-to-play games, the latest consoles, fresh ground coffee, signature cocktails and video game-themed live events. Visit loading.bar for opening times and more information. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin and in each episode I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present or the one that so obsessed them it caused them to fail their exams or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a difficult breakup. Games a bit like songs often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, for my perfect console. My guest today is a legendary British video game designer. While a student at Manchester University, a friend invited him to write a text adventure, which led him to work for the video game publishers US Gold and later Activision. In 1990, he co-founded Revolution Software in the north of England, and after releasing Lure of the Temptress and Beneath the Steel Sky, he began work on Broken Sword, a world-spanning adventure game starring the American lawyer George Stobart and his French girlfriend Nicole Collard. The game had a witty script, was beautifully illustrated, and featured a soundtrack by Barrington Falong, the composer of the Inspector Morse TV series, whom my guest had first met over a game of cricket. After Sony reluctantly brought the game to PlayStation, it became a smash hit, leading to a string of successful sequels. But the course has not always been easy. The audience for adventure games is limited, he once told me, but that audience is also incredibly loyal. Welcome, Charles Cecil. Pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So um, can you tell me a little bit about growing up in um, what was at the time, I think, Zaire in Central Africa? <laughs> Have I got that right? <laughs> the, 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 the Belgian Congo. And now it's the Democratic Republic of Congo, I think. Or maybe it is I. Uh, one was the French colony and one was the, the Belgian colony. But no, I was, I was actually born in London in 1962. We lived in near Notting Hill. And quite, quite an exciting start to my life. I was very young and uh, there was a knock on the door. And my father opened it. It was a secret service. And they asked if they could bug my room which uh, he was, we were all, well, I say we, I was a few months old. My parents were very excited by that. And it, it turned out that we lived next to Ivanov, who was having an affair with Christine Keeler. Wow. 
bands that the Secret Service obviously wanted to find out what was going on with regards to John Profumo. Mm. Uh, obviously, the youngsters listening to this won't have any idea what we're talking about, but it was, you know, it was quite an exciting um, time. Yeah, there was a recent uh, BBC dramatisation, wasn't there, of the Profumo affair? There, there was, there was. Did you fe- did you feature in that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't remember. What a good question. Um, my, my mind is now racing back, and I'm trying to remember exactly. I, I, I think they might have missed me out, which was a terrible shame. But what, what London was, um, and again, there's quite a lot of um, coverage of this, but London was dreadfully polluted um, and there was awful, awful smog. Is it? Um, and 1963 was a particularly cold winter. My mother recently told me, actually, that a Thai woman told her that the best thing uh, for a baby was to uh, put it outside um, in the freezing cold for an hour. <laughs> um, so, so she did that with me. It was, it was too cold for her, so she went back inside. Uh, leaving me in this, you know, brutally cold winter, uh, and, and 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 amongst the oh, smog. Poor baby Cecil. <laughs> so, uh, but I have to say, I, I've never actually been ill in my adult life, so it can't have done me too much harm. But anyway, she she was so appalled by you know bringing a child up in this in this atmosphere that she managed to convince my father to apply for a job uh, as an accountant. Well, he he was an accountant, um, so <laughs> he he applied to Unilever. And was offered a position in the Belgian Congo. Right. And the Belgian Congo had just got its independence from, from Belgium um, under the rule of the incredibly brutal, incredibly cruel King Leopold. We arrived rather naively, sailed up the River Congo for hundreds and hundreds of miles into the heart of darkness. Then the Americans decided that the, the new president, Patrice Lumumba, was too pally with the, the Russians. Uh, so they assassinated him. Uh, together with the French, and this fury erupted, and they they they, they rounded up the whites in in in, in a nearby town of Shopable, and um, we we were we were airlifted out. How how soon after you arrived did that all happen? Uh, about a year later. About a year later. But, right. Okay. But my mother, you see, was um, about to give birth to my sister. Oh my gosh. Um, and they said you just had to leave now. So she got on a light aircraft, uh, was evacuated, taken all over the place but thankfully didn't give birth until she arrived back in Brazzaville, which was the capital. So, 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 and then we went to Iran and various other places and, um, and, and then back to London um, when I was about six or seven. Four. That's quite a, well, quite an adventuring first few years you had there then. <laughs> I, I think ir- irresponsible par- parenting would be called out, but um uh, no, it was it was great. I wish I could remember a bit more of it. Well, um, you know the the format of this podcast is that I'm asking you to select your five games that you want to put on your very own fictional mini console. Your first one dates from 1979. Can you tell us about it? Absolutely, yes. So the first one on my fictional uh, console is is going to be Galaxian. <laughs> Um, Galaxians came out in, in, in 1979, and uh, I, I left school in 1980, um, and I uh, thought I wanted to be an engineer. Um, I, I still love Victorian engineering, um, the, the creativity and the technology and the way that the two merge together. And in many ways, I think video games reflect that idea of the um, aesthetic, the, the aesthetic and the technical coming together in harmony. God, that sounds very pretentious, but... You know, if, you, if you think of beautiful steam engines, uh, the reason they're so beautiful is because of their functionality. Um, and I think a great video game um, does, does, does the same. I got a sponsorship with Ford. Um, and To go to college, you mean, or, or to apprentice? To go to university, yes, yes, yes okay. yeah. Um, and we had a year, year, year out um, beforehand, and it was a phenomenal, it was a phenomenal year. It was the recipient of something called um, the Special Engineering Programme. Yeah. Uh, and we were told that we were going to be the captains of industry. And Ford sent us through, put us through the most extraordinary training program. We learned about, we, we went to law college, we went to business school, uh, we went into the factories, uh, learned a bit more programming, um, learned metalwork. Um, I, I absolutely, you know, loved my, my, my time there. 
uh, there was a friend, or, or I became friends with somebody who had just started a uh, home computer company, Arctic Computing. Uh, he disassembled the ROG of the Sinclair ZX80, uh, which had one K of memory, um, and had published it. And um, we used to go to the pub and play Galaxians together. Galaxians is a beautifully simple game. Uh, I'm sure that everybody listening to this will, will, of course, know it. Just to quickly describe the game, it's a, sort of a little like Space Invaders, but the the enemy spaceships or aliens, aren't they? They they fly in from different directions and they're multicolored. And they're multicolored, but they also follow patterns that you, um, you, you come to recognize. And... I mean, I think at the core of it, like Space Invaders, you have a bullet that appears at the front of your your, your ship, which scrolls horizontally along the bottom of the screen. Um, and when you fire it, like Space Invaders, it'll go up the screen until it hits uh, either the top of the screen or, or an enemy spaceship. But only at that point does another bullet appear on your... In, in other words, you're left vulnerable while your bullet is in midair. And that's at the heart of it where the gameplay loop is. Right. Because... Um, if if you um, it, it becomes extraordinarily frustrating if you miss because then you're spending your time avoiding the aliens. Whereas if you could shoot them effectively, then bullets reappear. And uh, this friend of mine, Richard Turner, as I say, had just started a computer games company, and he um, we we used to to, to to go in the evenings, have a, a few pints, and, and play this game, tabletop game. Uh, and and one day he said to me, um, you, "You like telling stories? Why don't you come and see what I'm doing? Come up to to Hull, which is where." He'd, his parents were away. He started this company, and his friend Chris Fulton had a, a TRS-80, uh, which was a Tandy uh, computer from uh, the US that was much more advanced for, than the ZX-81s that we were used to, the Sinclair ZX-81s, but with our one K of memory. Um, and um, we, we started playing some games, and he said, look, why don't you write an adventure game? Um, I'll, I'll program it. Um, and see where we go. And that was my first game, uh, Adventure B. He'd already written one. Um, so Adventure B, uh, Inca Curse. Amazing. And and so, so you'd finished your, your studies and you, or, or were you still at, at Manchester University at this time? Oh, no, 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 still. This was, I mean, this all started in the in the year between the school and starting. Oh, right. Um, okay. And then I went to university, as you kindly introduced me, to, to Manchester University. He was in Hull. So every weekend I'd drive, every Friday night I'd drive off, meet him in, in Hull, uh, and we would write games, play games, run the company. And to begin with, it was phenomenal. W.H. Smith at the time was the main retailer of home computer games, uh, but they only took uh, games for a company called ICL. And they, they, were, they were just, they were dull. <laughs> and we tried to get our games into W.H. Smith's, but they refused to take them and, and one day, Richard phoned up um, or went to see the manager um, at W. Smith at Hull and said, would you, would you take some of the games? And he said, I'm terribly sorry. We can't pay you in advance, but we will pay you once they sell. I said, okay. So on Saturday morning, got up early, took them 20 of our, of our games, um, got home. An hour later, the phone rang. It was the manager of W. Smith. He said, they've all sold out. Can you bring some more? Wow. And Good moment. Uh, I mean, isn't that phenomenal? Yeah. And and suddenly W.F. Smith realized the extraordinary opportunities that they were losing. They appointed a buyer, um, a guy called John Rowland. I remember him very well because he was such an important part of, of, of our business. And I, I'd write a new game, then phone him up. And in those days, the phones would go beep, 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 and you'd have to put 10p in. Uh. And it was just really embarrassing to phone the buyer from W.H. Smith's on a, on, a, on a public phone box. So I'd, I'd have to go scour Manchester and in the in the city centre they had new new phone boxes where you could put the money in first and and God help you if you ran out of money but otherwise they would never know that you were ringing from a public box. And seems much more professional. <laughs> seems so much professional, exactly. <laughs> I found up and go, uh, John, John, yeah, hello, John Rowland here. Hi, John, this is Charles Cecil from Arctic Computing, and the bus would go past and I'd put my hand over the. <laughs> you know, okay, go, oh hello, Charles, how's how's things? I go, we've got a new game. Um, Adventure C or Adventure D or 1K Chess or whatever. And you go, oh, right. And uh, um, so this new adventure, what's it like? And it was a bit like the last one. He went, oh, uh, send us 5,000. Well, okay, job, there. Put the phone down. And that was it. And I have, I have to say, Charles, this is it's incredibly enterprising of you to, in your weekends and your first year of university, to be running a company like this. I mean, most, 
Uh, that's certainly not something I would have been able to do. Where, where did this sort of, where did this organisation come from? Well, I mean, I have to say that my social life took a took a dive because it meant that every every weekend I was away. And, you, and you're also, I mean, you know, selling five thousand games to W. H. Smith. You must have been, you know, earning quite well for a for a student. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. How did you how do you cope with that when you're nineteen years old or, or twenty or however old you were? <laughs> We, we we had we we were sort of boy racers. We got um, as as everybody was. We got um, uh, RS RS sixteen hundred uh, Ford Escorts, and uh, they they already had you know fuel ejectors, and we put turbochargers on them. Uh, and, and and I lived in a, in in a place called Hume, which was next to Moss Side in Manchester. It was really rough, quite rough. Yeah, I mean, I loved it, but it was described as the worst housing project in Europe. Right. Maybe maybe not the best place to have a really expensive car then. No. I mean, I did get a little garage, but I remember Richard bought himself um, a Lotus Esprit Turbo and I drove that in. <laughs> I had to back it into this and hope that nobody had seen it because if anybody had seen it, it would have been gone within an hour. I was surprised the police didn't, uh, the police didn't think you were, you know, a drug dealer, essentially. <laughs> well, that was, do you know what? Um, we, we, we started paying rent. I started paying rent for this place, which was seven pounds a week. And, um, like a girl that was living with me said, nobody pays rent. So I stopped paying and nobody, nobody said anything because it was so grim that Manchester city council was attempting to get the funds together to knock it down. Uh, but in that sort of in-between period, we were effectively squatting because, um, it was, it was so derelict, um, that it had been condemned. Um, and so what happened was that it, it was drug dealers and students, and that was it because, you know, the families, thank goodness, had been moved out because it was too, you know, it's too grim and none of the lifts work and there was dog shit everywhere and, and cockroaches. The, the police almost certainly wouldn't have gone anywhere near it because, uh, as I say, it was, it was drug, dealers, drug dealers and students. So let, let's, let's wind, <laughs> wind the clock forward a little bit. And so you leave, you leave Manchester and you join Arctic Computing. And at some point you move into publishing, is that correct? I come to the end of my university. I've got to decide whether to take up the job offer with Ford, which which is very lucrative and has been planned out, or, or, or go into computer games and go and work for Arctic. In retrospect, thank goodness, uh, I, I choose the latter. Yeah. Did, you, did your parents have anything to say about your choice? No, to be fair, they didn't. No. Like my parents are, are, are fantastic. My, my father was a chartered accountant, so he gave very good advice. But no, they, 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 they were very supportive. But that's a great question because, you know, certainly as a parent, you, you would think that it would be much better for your child to, to, to go into a, a top company like Ford rather than it's very easy in hindsight to see how, 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 how huge the video games industry was to become. But at the time, it felt like it was, you know, good home computers were like yo-yos, that they would, they would peak and then disappear. There was no indication whatsoever that there was going to be this incredible growth. And then about 19, sorry, 1984, Commodore started coming in, Nintendo started coming in, and you know this very, very safe little cottage industry was absolutely decimated. Uh, I, I went to work for Arctic full-time. What more out of loyalty than anything else? Because you know the writing was on the wall that this company was just you know going into a tailspin. Which, which, which you did. So after you, you worked for US Gold for a bit and then you moved to Activision, uh, we will get to your second game in a minute, but just quickly, I, I think people would be interested to hear what Activision was like at that time. Was it, I mean, I assume it was very different to the Activision of today. It was a very different Activision, yes. It was very tough in many ways. My manager in the US simply didn't care that there was an eight-hour time difference. So he'd phone me up uh, at, at like sort of midnight, and right. expect me to get back to him, and, and more probably I did. But it, there was, you know, I was I was young. Many nights I'd sit all night with the developers um, and have a snooze in my chair, which um, wow, you know, was was crunch and and is extraordinarily counterproductive. And so I'm I'm not you know in any way endorsing it, uh, but it's it's what we did. Yeah, it's it's so. Um... The pic- the picture you paint is so 1980s. I have to it say, is, I know. I know. <laughs> yeah, well. Well, actually, I'm telling you that the, the guy, the guy I'm talking about, is called is is called Jeff Mulligan, uh, and he was my Uber boss. He was my boss's boss. I, I remember I'd been at, at Activision for for about six months, and he phoned me up and he said, "Look, uh, Chuck," because he he called me Chuck Cecil. He said, "Chuck, I think you need to come out to San Francisco." I go, "Okay, Jeff." Yeah, no. 
And so I went over and I was, you know, he'd given me such a hard time, but you know, that's, that was part of the course. And I arrived on the Wednesday and we did some work on Wednesday and Thursday. And then I turned up on Friday morning, he went, Chuck, uh, we're going out on the boat. And I said, but Jeff, we've got all this work to do. We went, Friday, boat day. He had a, what's called a cigarette boat. It was um, basically a drug, drug smuggler boat um, powered with two five liter engines. It went so fast. And we, we went out. And um, and uh, I remember going in this boat at, at maybe about 120 miles an hour and hitting the wake of the Alcatraz ferry and going up and going back down and everybody was cheering. And in the evening, after a few hours, we chugged into this wonderful um, uh, place where they served us tequila top cocktails. And I was going... This is what he does every day. He gives me a hard time, but actually he's out on his boat all the time. He came over to to London, I remember, when uh, we, we, we were based in Reading. Uh, and I, I was rowing and I still row. And he went, Chuck, yeah, I gather you row. He said, I'd like to I'd like to challenge you to a rowing race. I'm okay. A few months go by and I go, Jeff, what about this rowing race? He go, okay. So he got the whole company to my, my club, which was in Hammersmith. And he got into a boat and I got into a boat he, he claimed that his boat had got lost in stuck in customs or something. I don't remember. Anyway, so and the, the Thames is flowing really, really fast. Is, it, is this a proper uh, skull boat? But uh, yes, this is a proper boat. skull boat. Exactly. Yes. So the Thames is running really fast. My boss is is Rod Cousins. His boss is Jeff Mulligan, who's so he's my Uber boss. And I'm going. God, this is so. We we get into the skull, <laughs> and the the CFO who's been brought along from America shouts, "Go! We go!" He turns straight over. He thinks he thinks because he can because he could he could um, he, he's good on a skull you know on a, on a, on an ergo that he can skull and all hell breaks loose because the water's going really fast and he's being dragged towards the hull of a boat and if he goes between those hulls more together he's going to drown. Oh gosh! So, so so he is utterly humiliated. He's pulled out. And he looks at me and he goes, right, we'll do the rowing machine. Okay, okay Jeff. <laughs> like, okay, okay. So I go first and, you know, I'm pretty fit and I, and I do a, you know, 2,000 meters. I do it in however many, you know, seven, seven, seven and a half minutes or whatever. And he's, he goes on there, you know, he's cut his foot. So there's a bit of blood coming out and off he goes. And he's like sort of bath out of hell for the first minute and then he slows down and then he goes paler and paler and paler <laughs> until he's completely white except for the blood oozing out of his foot and he's way 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 behind me and it's like this is not the way to go forward of the american company this is not what you no. do shaking his fist at you damn you chuck <laughs> cecil <laughs> exactly he stood up and he had to be held up because otherwise he would have fainted oh oh God. Wow. i don't know why okay. i do it i don't know why i do it so that's how you came to leave Activision. <laughs> exactly. That is how I came to leave Activision. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. No, what actually happened is Activision left itself. It was the American side... The British side was very run by Rod was um, very wily and, and made quite a lot of money. The US side was I mean I really like Jeff, so I'll uh-huh. I'll take him out of this. But there was they were just a bunch of slobs, and there was this terrible sort of 
American self-confidence. Uh, there was no humility whatsoever. So, so how did you get from there to founding Revolution Software? I'd wanted to get back into development. Um, a good friend of mine, Sean Brennan, he, he, he was now, at this point, deputy at a company called Mirasoft, run by Robert Maxwell, um, father to Ghislaine Maxwell, yes, of course. The media mogul. He, he was a media mogul. He was alive at this point. And Sean said, look, if you, we, we need products, we're expanding rapidly. Uh, if you wanted to go back into development, we would be very receptive to um, supporting you. So I was really excited by this because I wanted to get back into development. And I teamed up with somebody who I'd worked with at Arctic called Tony Warner, and he suggested that a guy called Dave Sykes get involved. And so I started exploring the idea of getting, you know, starting a, a new development company, uh, writing adventures. And then Jeff turned up, um, Jeff Monaghan, and said, Chuck, I've got some really bad news. We're going to have to uh, make you partially redundant. Could you work just two days a week? You know, would you mind? Right. And it's like, Oh my God, what a great opportunity. So I said, Jeff, well, I think I can probably, you know, I can probably do that. And it was, yes, let's, you know, uh, I've got three days a week to set up a new company, um, which we initially called Turnvale. And let's see where we get to. So Tony, uh, I, I gave Tony um, some of my savings to to, to, to write, um, start writing this adventure game, which of course was going to turn into Year of the Temptress. And, 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 and I had the time uh, plus half my salary from, from Activision. Amazing. So, and, and I've been completely open. Um, it was their request that I, I work part-time. Um, and, it, and it was just a great way to, to, to be able to start a company. Yeah, which, which presumably meant that they didn't own your IP. Yeah, yeah. Not at all. Yeah, yeah. And then um, Robert Maxwell um, dies, doesn't he, at sea? Had you challenged him to a rowing race? <laughs> Robert Maxwell was, I mean, dubious, um, uh, more dubious even than his daughter. Um, and what what had happened was that he'd, he, he heard the Mirror, um, the Daily Mirror, As which if. for anybody outside the UK is a tabloid newspaper, not much loved by... Meghan Markle and her, and her husband, I suspect. He had a yacht called the Lady Galate, uh, named, of course, after his daughter Galate. And one day he mysteriously died, drowned. And it turned out that he'd been stealing money from the, from the Mirror Group pension fund. Uh, and the whole thing collapsed. We were midway through our first game, Year of Tetris. Uh, the company collapsed. And, 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 and so we, we, we were able to terminate the agreement. But I think I'm moving... I'm jumping ahead of myself here. Well, I'm, I mean, we, I could listen to you talk about these days for forever, but I'm conscious a little bit of the, the format, <laughs> the podcast. It is a, it is a two-hour podcast, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? So should we... Should, it's not too far of a jump ahead to 1993. Do you want to tell us about your second choice? Yes, my second choice is Day of the Tentacle. And the reason that I'm going to choose Dare the Tentacle is because it uniquely managed to mix both the 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 the, the, the slapstick humour, brilliant humour, but also the logic. Um, it wasn't it wasn't completely logical in the way that so many other games at that time, so many other adventures at that time were. Um, you know, the classic puzzle that for anybody who's played will remember is that you know you need to run a hamster wheel uh, to ge generate electricity. So, of course, what you do is go back in time, freeze a hamster, um, send it through, you know, send it through time frozen, uh, and then put it in the microwave to defrost it so that it can create electricity so that you can bloody, bloody blur. And, and the point is that actually the, these were games, this, this was an adventure that had been really, really well structured, really well thought out. And it was so much more than just the gags. And it, it, I, I, I found it quite inspirational, I have to say. Did, did you see yourselves as sort of the British uh, LucasArts at that time? Well, we, we were compared to LucasArts, but to be honest with you, no, I didn't. Because mm. um, rather naively, I think we saw Sierra as our big competitors. Um, and LucasArts was still pretty under the radar at that point. Um, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah, from our European perspective, we saw them very much as, as sort of equals. So uh, just to go back to the, the story of, of your, your career then. So you, um, Mirosoft collapses at the, with the um, 
uh, the death of, of Maxwell. And then, so you then spend all of your time working on Lure of the Temptress. Um, and at which point, you know, how far along the development of that game do you, do you found revolution? Tony, and thank, I mean, I owe him a huge debt of gratitude. We're still great friends and he's a, a really good guy. Um, he is prepared to leave his job, uh, which is more than I am. He uh, took delivery of the PC that I loved so much. I used to play. I used to play uh, flight sims on it. Absolutely loved it. And uh, works in Hull um, to, to to write this game. And we we meet every couple of weeks. And then we come up with the the, the basic design, which is something called virtual theatre, which is the characters walk around the world talking to each other, uh, exchanging information. In principle, it works. I mean, the theory works a lot better than the practice. Although we did get fantastic reviews. Um, we our reviews were mid nineties, um, so it, we didn't do everything wrong but um it, 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 it in hindsight it's quite a frustrating game to play but anyway it, it looked beautiful after probably three or four months maybe six months we realized that it's it's about time to present to mirasoft tony uh drives down and and um i i felt because i felt so passionately about my pc i i demanded that he wrap it in a blanket and put it in a child seat uh, sorry put it in the in, you know wrap it up in a in, in, in a seatbelt. I like the visual of it being in a in a baby seat, though. That's good. <laughs> exactly. So he drives down with Dave, um, and he he he. I, I had a, a small flat in London. Um, parks out. He parks outside, and you know comes in, and we start talking, planning, have a glass of wine, another glass of wine, drink a ridiculous amount of wine, given that we've got a big presentation the next day. Wake up the next morning feeling a bit blurry eyed, and there's something that's been nagging away at me. Uh, and I look out of the window and I see that somebody's broken into the car. And what's been nagging me is that we've forgotten to unpack the PC and it's been left on the back seat. And I realised to my horror that if that PC's gone, that is the end of the demo, but that's the end of revolution because there's no way on God's earth that we can afford to, you know, rewrite all this code and, and buy another PC. And I dash down to the car to find that actually the thief has stolen the radio, but they've left the PC on the back seat, and um, so Revolution lived to to breathe another day. Wow! Maybe you just thought it was a, a pile of blankets or something. <laughs> yeah, cool. The, the head of marketing, Alison Beasley, who's still doing PR actually, phoned me up. I remember and said, "Look, we've got we've got to come up with a name for this game." So okay, and so I, I faxed her a list of names, and at the bottom I put. Lure of the Temptress, and I put in brackets. We can't call it this, by the way. And of course, you know, the one thing I've learned since then is don't ever tell marketing things, people, things that you don't want them to grasp onto. Because she grasped onto this and said, we love Lure of the Temptress. It has to be called that. <laughs> and I said, look, Alison, honestly, the reason I said it can't be Lure of the Temptress is the game has no luring, nor does it have a Temptress. <laughs> and there was a silence. And she said, can you put one in? I went... <laughs> Really? She said, yes. So, so what Mirasoft did is they extended it by four months so that we could rewrite the whole story so that it fitted the name that the marketing people liked. Oh, wow. But, but, but the irony is that during that four months was when Robert Maxwell fell off the back of his yacht and died. And had we not extended it, then Mirasoft would have published it, gone bankrupt. We would have been in really big trouble. But as it was... We got the rights back and we could then go to, to Virgin wow. with the game at the beginnings of the new game, which was going to be Beneath the Steel Sky. So you, you owe it all to the Temptress after all. <laughs> to, to be teed, yes. <laughs> um, okay, let's let's go forward a bit to 1996 and your next choice. Yeah, I'm going to go for Mario 64. My, my children were young, but they started playing games, and I used to play Mario 64 with them. Um, we'd had a number of adventures that had come out in 3D and looked terrible. Um, 3D was the big future, but people weren't quite sure what to do. And what Nintendo have an absolute knack of doing is writing games that use the technology at its current state. Um, and, and they've continued to do that throughout. 
Our Mario 64 looked beautiful. It was simple, but the camera was phenomenal. And it just was a great game. To me, it was the first game that really moved into 3D. And I enjoyed playing it with my kids. They were much better than me, even though they were only five or six. To me, it epitomizes the, the way that Nintendo can innovate. And 1996 is the year when the first Broken Sword comes out, and which is obviously so different to Super Mario 64, isn't it? it you know, it's determinedly 2D and animated, you know, beautifully hand-drawn. So were you concerned that the world was the world of games was moving to 3D at this time? Not, not for Broken Sword 1, but for Broken Sword 2, absolutely. For Broken Sword 1, Sean, Sean Brennan, um, who was now um, the deputy at Virgin, um, had seen how successful Lyra the Temptress and Beneath the Steel Sky had been um, and basically asked if, if we could raise our ambition so that we could compete with uh, Sierra and LucasArts, who had much bigger budgets than us. And uh, Broken Sword was, was the result. Um, I, I, was, I, I felt you know, great serendipity. I'd, I'd, I'd read in Edge magazine that there was a college called Ballyferber College in Dublin, which would be set up to train animators and layout artists for the Dolby Studios um, in Dublin. Um, and Dolby Studios had closed, but they were still producing, you know, extraordinarily talented students. I went over there to try and find some animators, and I was shown around by a gentleman called Owen Cuffell, and Owen was lecturing in layout. He'd worked at Don Bluth for all his life, actually. And he, he asked to see what we were doing, so I showed him some roughs. And he was a little fellow, and he sort of squealed with laughter, and he said, those are terrible. He said, I'm going to show you what I do, and you're going to employ me. Wow. So he did show me his layouts, and I did employ him. <laughs> and he was just a genius. I owe him such a huge debt of gratitude. Yeah. Um, so much of the look of Broken Sword came from him. He always challenged. He always challenged, and it would drive us nuts. Or it would drive my team nuts. They refused to talk to him. But... I have this knack of recognizing and collecting genius people. And, you know, they, they, they might be problematic. They might be difficult. They might talk too much. But if they're really good, you just put up with that because ultimately the end result is going to be better, much better because of it. And, yeah. and he was a classic case. As I say, people just would refuse. My team would refuse to talk to him. But I wouldn't because I knew that when he pushed and he pushed and he pushed, there was always a really good reason. For it, yeah. That's a, uh, the Don Bluth Studio also made um, Dragon's Lair, didn't it? The the uh, the arcade game, and I, I hadn't ever connected the dots there. But yeah, there's something of uh, the Dragon's Lair in Broken Sword's um, appearance, at least. But you're right. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So, and and as well with with Broken Sword, you sort of benefit from timing as well, in the sense that uh, it's you know around the time that Sony's PlayStation, the first PlayStation, is having its ascent. How did you convince Sony to put the first Broken Sword on that machine, which doesn't seem sort of particularly well suited to an adventure game? What else what at Activision, this lanky guy called Phil Harrison um, was very, very keen to get into the industry. Um, and he did a design, I think he did a design for Warhammer for us. Um, it never came to anything. And then he phoned me up in about 1995, 1994, and said, look, I'm working for Sony now. There's this new console called the PSX. Um, would you like to come and see it? Now, in those days, uh, the Japanese has um, Nintendo and Sega. You would never in a million years have approached an independent developer. So this was quite special. And um, I, I went down to, to, to London, went to Sony, and he, he did a demo. Um, and it was the famous one with the Transaurus head. Yes. Um, and uh, it was absolutely phenomenal. And clearly what he was after was visceral 3D games. Um, so when I presented the idea of doing Broken Sword, you know, there was very little interest. Virgin had already rejected it. They said, you know, nobody wants to play a, a 2D adventure on, 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 on the PlayStation. Um, and then um, a guy called John Roberts, who I knew, and Martin Alltimes became our champions. They kind of really bulldozed it through because they thought it might work. Then went on to review and, you know, nobody had very high expectations. It got 
9 out of 10 from the official PlayStation magazine, which in those days, I think, had a circulation, was it 600,000 a month? They gave it 9 out of 10 and extended coverage because they loved it so much. The, the German, and they cover-mounted it as well. Um, and the Germans did the same and the French did the same. So basically, we were talking about probably 1.5 million cover mounts. And the game did phenomenally well. And everybody was just blown away, particularly Sony, because they, had, they hadn't had any sort of expectations. And years later, they, I remember one of the accounts persons saying, this game just keeps selling. It just keeps selling. It's extraordinary. And yeah, I remember with Broken Sword 2, which is not as good as Broken Sword 1, but Broken Sword 2, um, the official PlayStation magazine ran a poll. And it came in at something like number six, was sixth best PlayStation game ever. We, we were ahead of a number of the, the, the Tomb Raiders. We were ahead of the Resident, some of the Resident Evils. Uh, I, it was just mind-blowing. Yeah. I mean, it was so... I remember playing Broken Sword 2 when I was young, and it was such a good game to have on in the front room with other people pitching in and going, why don't you try this with this? And... You know, so it's a sort of a communal experience, wasn't it? And also, I think the um, the fact it was illustrated and you know beautifully animated, like a cartoon, meant it just didn't date. So you know, with uh, you know the Tomb Raiders, that it felt like each new Tomb Raider came out obviously superseded the last one because the technology was so obvious on the screen. Whereas that's not the case with with Broken Sword, is it? They they have they sort of endure in a different way. Well, extraordinarily, I mean, back in those days. Once a game went into retail, and then after six months, it was dead. What what happened through the early 2000s is retailers and the publishers scrapped to see how they could maximize their own profits. And both of them discovered, or the publishers discovered, that the best way to do it was to screw developers. So, you know, for Broken Sword 3 and Broken Sword 4, they were, they were successful. Broken Sword 3 was very successful for THQ. But we made a loss. We, we'd had to borrow £200,000 to finish the game. I'd never quite recouped. So, you know, we went through this process of basically mothballing the company because, you know, you, you can't keep writing games and losing money. And I thank Apple for this. They basically opened up the opportunities for digital distribution. Um, we were able to republish Broken Sword 1. You know, and I'm very proud of the fact that, you know, this is a game that was originally from 1996, released, you know, re-released 10, 11, 12 years later, and it still has a Metacritic score of 91%. Um, the idea, as exactly as you say, that the idea that these games just don't date is is extraordinary, which brings us this incredible catalogue because we own the IP to, to all our own games. Um, you know, back in, now in 2023, we have all of these games. Um, it, it's phenomenal. It's a huge privilege to to, to, to to have been able to go through that journey. So you, your fourth choice is a game that, that I think has dated perhaps more than the other ones that you chose but at the time just had this monumental impact can you tell us about uh, Grand Theft Auto 3 yeah Grand Theft Auto 3 I think absolutely epitomizes the very best of the PlayStation era What I loved about it was that, for me, it was the first game that truly merged narrative with emergent gameplay. To me, it was perfect because it was a fairly small map. There was a story that was always followable, but then this emergent gameplay, which mixed with the story brilliantly. Again, my, my, my son, David, who now actually clerks with me at Revolution, but um, he was seven or eight. We didn't allow him to play Grand Theft Auto because it was uh, 18. But I remember him watching me. In particular, one scene where when you go to the docks and you have to shoot somebody through a telescope, and I was ugh, I kept failing, and he was going really. I was saying, "Dad, Dad, I can do it," and I knew that he could have done it, but do I let him play the game, even though he's only like six or seven, uh. an eighteen game, and and and, and then allow me to progress? And, and I'm afraid that I didn't in the end. I decided that you know the 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 the, the responsible thing to do was to say that he couldn't play. And I never got beyond beyond that part. But for the you know four or five hours that that that, that I played it, um, I absolutely loved it. And 
and and I would love to finish it many many times and explore the world mm. more. Um, but you know, it's just an absolutely brilliant game, and congratulations, and, and and fantastic that you know it's a British game as well. I would say. Um, I, 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 earlier on, I was talking about you know the analogy with engineering, and again, this is a classic. It's it uses technology, it uses the story, it uses the emergent rule set um, brilliantly, and you know, congratulations to all involved. It is a few years after GTA Three comes out that you get a call from Hollywood. I think. Um, can you just tell us a story about the invitation you got to work on the Da Vinci Code? <laughs> what, what had happened was, as I said, is that we'd mothballed revolution. Um, we found ourselves in a position where, uh, as, as I say, basically uh, THQ, who is our American publisher, um, had probably made about $5 million from Brick and Soul 3, um, and we'd made a £200,000 loss. So I, I um, took on some consultancy work, um, and I got a call from... Um, take two and they'd licensed the da vinci code and they asked me if uh, you know i'd like to consult on it now i'm competitive i'm quite competitive with dan brown because uh, our, our fans claim that he must have played broken sword before he wrote the da vinci code because there are so many similarities according to them just in case there are any lawyers listening you know that's according to our fans <laughs> i would never make such a claim um so they asked me if if i'd like to to, to get involved and I, I'm a little bit, little bit, you know, my, my pride is there. Okay, well, like, yeah, I, I came up with this first and here I am supporting Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code. You spy an opportunity to ruin his, uh, his, his well, film. Well, <laughs> uh, the, the money, the money, I'm afraid. They, they, they say, well, you know, we'll pay your consultancy. And I go, oh, really? And it was quite good. Oh, and, 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 and we'd like to fly you out to Los Angeles. Oh, business class. And it's like, okay, my soul has been bought. I, I say, um, they say, can you can you come and um, talk to Ron Howard? So Ron Howard was the director of Da Vinci Code. He's Hollywood royalty, and he was the director of the Da Vinci Code. Um, and and I said, well, you know, what should I what, what should I prepare? Because I haven't given this any thought whatsoever. In fact, I said we haven't actually signed an agreement. Don't worry, just turn up. That'll be fine. Really? Yeah, yeah. We're going to pay you a consultancy rate, and we're going to fly you over to Los Angeles. Okay. Wow. This is Hollywood, baby. You know, this is easy money, easy come, easy go. So I find myself on, you know, the, a Virgin flight, th thinking about this 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 game and and, and how, how how it might work. Um, and you know, the next day I, I I turn up at Imagine Studios, which is where Ron Howard and his uh, team are based. And I'm met by uh, a woman called Julie, who's the senior vice president, Sony Sony Mark Sony Pictures Marketing. Actually, she says Charles. Thank you so much for coming. This is going to be a really contentious meeting. So if I was you, I'd sit at the back. I go, okay, in walks, um, in, in walks Ron uh, with his entourage. And he says, Julie, I'm sorry, but I've got some bad news. That can't be a video game. And Julie says, uh, these guys have paid. that the, the money is helping your fill. There's a contract. There's going to be a game. And Ron goes, oh, okay. It's got to come six months after the fill. No, Rod, says Julie. It's going to be a day and date. That's the way it works. It's going to be day and date. So Ron's getting you know, more and more. And he goes, okay, okay. If that's what the contract says, but no marketing. Julie takes a breath and says, Ron, the contract is quite clear. There's going to be a video game. It's going to be day and date. And these guys are going to market it because that's the way it works. And Ron turns puce and he turns around and says, so Julie, what are you going to do with my story then? And Julie says, Ron, I'm so pleased you asked that question because we've flown this guy all the way from England and he's <laughs> going to tell you what we're going to do with your story. So everybody looks around, including me, for this guy from England who's going to tell Ron all about the story <laughs> and all the eyes are on me. And I, I have absolutely no idea what to say. So Ron says, what do you know about the nice Templar? And I said, well, you know, I was, I was invited last year, which I had been, to a nice Templar ceremony uh, in Worcester Cathedral, of all places. And he said, really? And I said, yeah. I said, um, they had all the regalia. I said, and I, I don't know how authentic they were, but, you know. Oh, so where do you come from, he said. I said, I come from the city of York in England, um, which, uh, as you'll know, Ron, is where Constantine the Great was declared emperor. And he went, no, I thought it was Constantinople. Went, no, no, no. He was declared emperor in York and went on to found Constantinople. Really? Went, yeah. 
And Alice looking around the room going, Sue says, so what are you going to do with my story? And I lean forward and I say, Ron, we think that it's all about symbolism. Now, for anybody who's read the book, that is such an obvious thing to say because it is all about symbolism. Uh, and he looks at me and goes, do you know what? That's what we think in the film too. I went, well, that's great, Ron. It's great that we're, you know, that we're, 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 we're together on this. He went, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm going, this is it. This is it. But it ain't. He leans forward. He goes, so can you give me some examples? And I lean back and I go, yes. You could have heard a pin drop. In medieval paintings, the Virgin Mary will always have a blue outer garment and Mary Magdalene will always have a red outer garment. And that is the way that a medieval audience would have known the difference. And that is an example of the symbolism that we're going to bring into the game. Ron gets so excited. He goes, oh my God. And we all get on like a house on fire. He'd, he'd walked in saying, you only had 15 minutes. An hour and a half later, he, he walks out and he says, do you know, I'm really excited. This is going to be a great project. And, you know, it would have been a great project. Um, we had problems with the developer. Um, and, and, and actually, my, my contribution, contribution was very limited. Okay. So, Charles, if we come to your last choice here, this is from 2016. Can you tell us about it? Yes. I'm going to choose um, a game from Play Dead. Uh, called Inside. Uh, I loved their game Limbo, which had come a couple of years earlier. And I guess, in many ways, for the same reasons that I loved Grand Theft Auto 3, it was, it, it, it was provocative. You start the game, a child rushes onto the screen... Um, onto the screen, absolutely terrified, but you don't know what, what of. And suddenly you are controlling this child and you don't know why they're terrified. You don't know what is in store. Um, and what Play did, did so brilliantly is they told a really involving story without a word on the screen and without any dialogue. All of the gameplay was told through the background as through, even more brilliant, through the gameplay. Inspired... I would have thought by uh, Fritz Lang's Metropolis, um, the absolute masterpiece, you know, and I remember in one particular bit of gameplay where you're controlling the character that has to walk in a robotic way because of all the robotic characters. And in doing so, it was conveying what the world was about. The Inside is one of the few games that I've finished multiple times. And, and, and this is certainly a game that I would um, be very, very happy to play many times more. Well, um, Charles, thank you so much for these picks. Um, it's been amazing to hear your stories. I've just got one last question. Talked about the longevity of the Broken Sword games. I wondered if we can expect to see sort of remasters of them on Switch or any any contemporary platforms anytime soon. Yeah, well, I mean, Simon, I, I, it's such a boring thing to say that you know that that, that, that we can't talk. I can't talk. Um, basically, we have. I have a wonderful community manager who gets so strict with me um, because I love, I mean, the one thing I would say is never tell me any secrets because I can't keep them. But uh, as, as you, as you say, as we're talking about, we have, we have this incredible opportunity and um, the next few years for revolution are going to be very, very exciting because of that. Oh, I'm sure everyone's looking forward to see, you know, what the, what the next chapter is in that story for sure. Bless you. Thank you. What a great time that was. Thank you so much to my guest, Charles Cecil, and to you, of course, for listening this far into the podcast. Absolutely love Revolution's games. Brogasaur 2 was, in fact, the first one that I played, so I feel a bit more romantically attached to that one, even though Charles says he prefers the first game. And then early into my career, I reviewed, in fact, Brogasaur 3. And uh, I remember after about... 20 or 30 hours hitting a wall and just not being able to progress and having a giant panic and then getting in contact with the PR person who is handling it who then got in contact with Charles who told me that there was a bug in the game and it wasn't down to ineptitude uh, thankfully anyway if you have not played any of the Broken Sword games before go back try them out 
They're on Apple devices. They're on, you can get Broken Sword 5 on the Nintendo Switch. And I'm going to take it from that last answer that uh, Charles gave us that we can expect to see uh, other games from the Revolution catalogue appearing on current platforms soon. Uh, let's hope that gets confirmed at some point. So this was one of the earlier episodes that I recorded this year at the start of 2023 before I had the format of the podcast completely locked down, which is why I neglected to ask Charles to supply us with a name for his perfect console that we can use to market it to the world. Uh, but I did email him more recently and asked if he could supply us with uh, a name for his, a brand name for his console. This is what he wrote in his email to me. Hi Simon, Nintendo have beaten me to Revolution and it would perhaps be a bit obvious. So I will go for Humdinger after a home computer prototype that I saw at the West Coast Computer Fair in 1983. I tried to license the rights for Europe, but that is a different story. And uh, yes, indeed, I'm sure it is a different story. There's always another story when it comes to Charles Cecil, and we will have to have him back on the podcast at some point in the future um, and try to get him to share some more of those stories with us, uh, the ones that are broadcastable at least. Thank you so much for, for listening this far into the podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed it. Uh, if you have, and if this is the first one you've listened to, then please do go back. We have had some fantastic guests over the last few months uh, in these early weeks and months of My Perfect Console. Uh, please please do go back, listen to those. Um, some, some of you, I'm sure, are eager just to hear from uh, game developers like Charles. We've had people like Eric Wolpe. Walpole, the writer of Portal On. You can go and listen to some of those game developers speaking, but then perhaps others of you are interested to hear from people working in other industries. So we've had comedians such as Dara O'Brien, Phil Wang, Susan Kalman have all been on. Uh, we have got some musicians coming up in the future. We've had actors like Ashley Birch, um, writers such as Heather Ann Campbell and there's lots more where that came from so uh, yeah I'm trying to keep the list uh, as diverse as possible and trying to get people from different walks of life on uh, and so yeah if there's just one particular area where you prefer to hear from then I'm afraid it's gonna it's probably gonna be uh, a bit more diverse than that but yeah there's something there for everyone, I hope. And I'm trying to just keep it as the most interesting individuals uh, who I can get access to and who are willing to come and talk about their love and passion for games. If you'd like to write to me, you can do at myperfectconsole at gmail.com. Uh, please do write to me with any thoughts and suggestions for guests. Many of you have done so and have written to quite a few of those people. Uh, not all of them are available or willing to do it. Some have said they would like to do it, but they're too busy at the moment. They might do it later in the year. So if you have written in, then, you know, rest assured, I am working my way through that list and hoping to hear back from people. If you would like to follow me, you can do at Simon Parkin on Twitter. You can also follow the podcast at My Perfect Console with the O's removed from console, uh, where you can get sneak previews of guests coming up. And uh, also you can read the lists of the games that people have chosen, uh, previous guests have chosen. If you want to support the podcast financially, please pop along to Acast Plus, uh, where you can become an early access supporter and for just £3 a month, you will get your episodes 24 hours early and ad-free. It's also just a great way to support what I'm doing. Uh, a lot of work goes into these. Uh, do I do run ads, of course, but, um, you know, uh, supporting in that way is, uh, you know, a wonderful way to show that you would like me to keep doing this. Uh, so thank you for those of you who do that. And thank you just for those of you who have left kind reviews and messages. Okay. All that remains for me to say is I will be back in a few days throughout April. We've got two guests a week and uh, I will have one more guest. There are five choices and one more perfect console. Until then, goodbye.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.